Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Scott uh, talking to Casey. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, starting in chapter one, and we're going to uh, try to have a discussion about verses one through 15, uh, Mark's introduction to Jesus's ministry. Um, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoy that. All right, Scott. So you're going to be teaching and you're going to be um, going through Mark chapter one through 15. So what you got? Okay, so uh, I should make sure I have this open. Um, yeah, so as I'm as I'm looking and as I'm preparing to talk about this this uh, passage uh, with the group, um, what it looks like to me, man, is it's really simple. It's like almost like Mark's giving Jesus a pedigree, and then giving us a summary of his message. Because from what I can tell, it looks like I had it. I had a list here. Sorry. So it looks like uh, Mark basically gives us six like references for Jesus. Okay. So he gives us the prophets with a with an Old Testament quotation, two of them. He gives us John the Baptist uh, as a reference, right? Where John the Baptist is is pointing to Jesus. Yep. He gives us the Holy Spirit who comes upon him. He gives us God the Father who who you know, expresses his, his love and his, uh, his, uh, what positive disposition towards him, right? He's well pleased with him. Yeah. And, and then I, I put in my list, uh, separately the devil and the angels, but it's kind of, it's kind of both together because not that the devil is a reference, but that, uh, you know, Jesus, he was in the desert w with the devil. And he just mentioned, he basically just mentions that. And he was, he was tended to by angels. And, uh, and so who else has withstood the devil? So so it just seems like he just gives us this really brief uh, summary of, like, check out Jesus. <laughs> yeah, like, why, why do you think Mark opens up his gospel? Let's, like, why do you think he says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written? It seems like Mark, do you, do you feel like Mark is making a definitive claim here? Like, like he's putting his, like, that's probably one of the only things that Mark, um, well, what, what do you think? What do you think Mark's doing there? Well, um, so first I thought it was interesting. This section starts with that, right? Mark saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, verse 15 ends with repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the clear indication, I think, to Mark's audience was, here's your king, basically. The yeah. king has come, right? And it's Jesus. Okay. And um, and that's why that's why I, I'm I'm looking at these things as like as like a, a pedigree or, or a list of credentials or references, uh, because it's like it's like it's just like rapid fire, you know. It's not like Mark doesn't really give us. A, a lot of detail here, right? He doesn't really get into, uh, like he he tells the story of Jesus' baptism, but it's it's more like he's baptized. You know, John says a couple of things about him, uh, but it's really it's really rapid fire, and it, and it seems to to just be, uh, it just be making a, a very simple point, like. Uh, so you that, kind of see like the baptism, too. Are are you gonna talk about how maybe the baptism of the Spirit that ascends upon Jesus is unique um Do you see it as unique as far as when it happened like is empowering jesus in his ministry well i don't know what you, in what sense you mean but it's interesting because i was thinking about that and um because in the new testament we we learn that like we receive the spirit and the spirit stays with us which is unique yeah. from the old testament where it would come upon people for a time but it wouldn't it, it wasn't a permanent thing yeah. what's interesting to me with the spirit coming upon Jesus as a dove is that it seems implied that the spirit doesn't leave him, but we're kind of left to, to see, right. And we kind of find that out over the course of the book, because finally, uh, like the spirit, you know, ultimately he, he is faithful to go to the cross and then, and then there's the empty tomb. Right. Um, and and the spirit abides with them all throughout his, his ministry, right? Because you have the the miracles and and all the manifestations of the spirit. So I almost I almost see the baptism as like a 
the baptism combined with what John says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, right? It's yeah. almost like a, uh, it might be an allusion to what the audience already knew, right? Because they would have had this preached to them, I think, you know, that the, that, uh, the Spirit abides with them. Um, but it, it almost seems like a teaser for those who, who wouldn't have already known, right? It's like he received the Spirit and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean he's going to baptize me with the Spirit? You know, if you have the Old Testament understanding. and uh, Isn't it interesting that he brings up John the Baptist, who Josephus mentions in, in his Antiquities? It is. Um, Which I have I, that quote right here. If you want, oh, you to, want to read it for me? Yeah. It says, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very just punish, punishment for what he did against John, called the Baptist, the Dipper. For Herod had called, killed him although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both mm. as to justice toward one another and reverence towards God, and having done so, joined together in washing. For immersion in water, it was clear to him, could not be used for the forgiveness of sins, but as a sanctification of the body, and if only the soul was already thoroughly purified by right actions. Mm. And when others masked about him, for they were very great, moved by his words, Herod, who feared that such strong influence over the people might carry to a revolt, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. Believe it, much better to move now than later have it raise rebellion and engage him in actions he would regret. Wow. I mean, it goes on to talk about how he put him to death, you know? Yeah. Because um, obviously he was not wanting a revolt. So... That's really interesting. It is, because, you, have, you know, that's Josephus's perspective. And obviously he got that account from, you know, talking to, you know, different sources. Well, so, it seems that John the Baptist was well-known, right? Yeah, that's why I think it's interesting that the Gospels use him. Yeah, yeah, that's something I I, I kind of, uh, I marked out as I was, as I was uh, outlining, like, it's like, hey, you know that guy John the Baptist? Because everybody knows him, like, he says that Jesus is greater than him, right? He baptized Jesus, but he says that Jesus has a, a greater baptism. You know, it's like it's like a reference. It's like to this famous person, you know, this famous martyr. Yeah, I mean, it's like they take this, like you said, they're taking a character like John the Baptist, and they're, you know, giving Jesus credence by using this character, you know, that is famous in their Jewish history. It really seems that way. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean it probably... I'm sure the writers, you know, I mean, and the thing is, if you, you know, if you look at the Gospels, they all use John the Baptist, so. Yep. Well, there, it seems to me that, like, several questions would have arisen about John the Baptist relating to Jesus, right? It's like, it's like, first of all, well, what about John the Baptist, you know, like, like, he, he was this great servant of God, and he died, so how can the Messiah have come, you know, something along those lines, but then also, um, like, well, didn't, Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist? So is Jesus John's disciple, you know, or, you know, they might be getting their, their evaluation. Uh, so, so it seems like they're all keen to correct misunderstandings about the relationship between Jesus and John. That's true. And you even have, um, in the gospels where they're like, is this John like resurrected? Mm. That's right. Yeah. Because they're like, wow, this guy, Jesus is doing some pretty powerful things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So, before we get too far afield, let's get back to your question about um, gospel. Yeah. Okay, so so he opens, um, I'll just read it really quick. In Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And <clears throat> and uh, I was I was doing some research on uh, that language in the in the ancient Roman inscription, because we've talked about how there's parallels between Jesus and Caesar, things that were said about Caesar, right? Yes. And it's, it's very interesting to me because this this uh, phrase, beginning of the gospel, is found in a, an inscription about Caesar where the priesthood is basically the, the Roman priesthood, or I forget, it's like Priena, the something like that. Uh, I think it was the priesthood of the, the cult of Caesar. But anyways, they say like his birth, the C Caesar's birth, was the beginning of the glad tidings for the whole world, right? Which is what the beginning of the gospel for the whole world that's what it, it says and that's what this that's the same word translated gospel in the esv here right so it's very interesting to me uh that parallel and it and it seems like caesar being declared the the son of god would have actually that particular line i think is talking about augustus because augustus dies and he gets declared a god right so then his son i think it's nero is the son of god 
right? So, yeah. so it seems like a very, very likely that that would have been on the minds or in the back of the minds of, of, all, of a lot of the Roman subjects. So probably people reading Mark recognized that and they saw it as a challenge to Caesar's claim, which what Caesar's claiming is basically that, that, the, that his, his reign, his kingdom is the world. Everything outside of his kingdom is non-existent <laughs> if you look at how, how he talks about the world, right? That's true. Uh, you see that in Luke where, where it says a decree went out to the whole world to collect taxes, right? Well, Caesar didn't actually rule the whole world. There were people outside of his rule, but yeah. not as far as he was concerned. <laughs> I mean, you had the Native Americans, you know, yeah. uh, here, you know, the natives who had been here for many years. I mean, you had, I there, mean, all, you know, people all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, Asia, I think he hadn't quite uh, fully conquered Asia. Um, but anyways, it's just it, it seems very clear that what Mark's doing is he's presenting a challenge to Caesar and he's saying, no, the actual good news uh, is is the good news of Jesus. And he's the son of God. And that's what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So the very first line is actually packed with a political, a religio political, political religious uh, challenge to Caesar. Right. This is the true son of God. This is the this is the gospel. And then. And this is especially, I think, um, amplified by verses two and three when he quotes the Old Testament. So, I, I have uh, extended quotes from what Mark quotes. Because so what he what he says is, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, "Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way." The voice of one crying in the wilderness, "Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight." And my expectation is the the Jews they were in, they were they grew up in synagogue, hearing the the Torah read. They would have heard the prophets read, and and they probably would have had a good sense of some of the context for these verses, which isn't necessarily true for me when I read through them. So I looked at them, and the extended quote of the first one, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare your way. I'll just summarize here, but in the Bible study, I think we'll read it together. Uh, but it's Isaiah 41 through 5. And uh, in the context... I'm just looking at it too, by the way. I'm looking at it too, by the way. All right, cool. Um, well, let me just read it. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And even and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so I say that the challenge to Caesar is punctuated here, because it's a challenge to Caesar's deity, glad tidings, rule, right? Because the glad tidings were his rule and his bringing of peace to the world by un uniting, right, uh, all the people under his reign, right? And and basically, it's it's very ironic to me and probably to most people today to hear that, because it's like, so he subjected all these people, and then he basically said, you're welcome. <laughs> but uh, but then this what this passage does, it says, not only is he a challenger to Caesar, but he is the revelation of the glory of the Lord, right? Yeah. Uh, he is he is the fulfillment of, of, uh, of this promise of God to reveal himself, uh, reveal his glory to his people. And this is temple language, right? Because the That's temple... True was the place where God's glory would would uh, come, uh, where, where his people could see it and, and worship him more in person than normal, right? Um, and and it's also it's also worth you know reflecting on this is a comfort, right, to to Jerusalem. And so I think I think the idea of God's glory being revealed, the the, the comforting of, of Jerusalem would have been things that the people were, were looking for, right? Because like we talked about in a previous study, uh, this was written to exiles, right? And oppressed. Yeah. I mean, the, the Gospels, yeah, that's that's the opening theme. You know, is <clears throat> Israel's deliverer. Yep, yep. So I um, think keeping that in mind when we go to read the New Testament is very beneficial. Yeah, I think so. Because otherwise it becomes an abstract, you know, message and yep. 
you know, it, it doesn't make sense of, okay, well, well, what's going on here? Why is Jesus showing up? Right, right. So I skipped the first quote. So I actually read the second one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The first one is the behold, I send my messenger. And this is Malachi 2.17 through 3.1, where he also uses temple language. And so this is this this is what's really interesting to me because it's not obvious to me as a Western Christian just reading the first three verses. Yeah. But in the in the light of the historical context and in the light of the the context of the verses of the of the scriptures he's quoting, Mark, what Mark seems to be doing is introducing Jesus as the revelation of God's glory to his people, the restory the the restorer of the glory of God to God's temple in some sense and a promise of comfort to the people of Israel who have been crushed under uh, Caesar's reign and by the way this is the son of God right Not yeah, I think that's I think in some sense that's what he's doing yeah right and that's awesome <laughs> yeah I mean it's very it's different like we talked about in the previous episode right yeah it's it's unique it's not you know, because I think I think typically people when they read the New Testament or they read about Jesus, they think, oh, yeah, well, you know, Jesus, like, yeah, he died for the sins of the world. Yeah. But there's a lot of other elements and a lot of story there that actually makes the message that more weightier. It gives yeah. it more weight. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's really interesting to me personally, because when I've when I've been embroiled in controversy about the deity of Jesus with uh, different uh, uh, different groups um, challenging that. And I've been researching that in the Bible. This was not my go-to place, but Mark seems to be explicitly telling his readers, this is the glory of Yahweh. And in fact, this is Yahweh, because when you, when you look at the, the first reference in, in Malachi, what he's talking about there is, uh, you know, I send my messenger, he'll prepare the way before me. That's what he quotes. But the next phrase is, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So um, this is a this is a proclamation that Yahweh has come to his people. Right. Yep. So he's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of Israel right in the first couple of verses. Yeah, I mean, it's his way of uh, uniquely saying that, for sure. Do you think that's that's a, that's a valid uh, interpretation there? Because I'm not trying to read anything into it. I just I just went and I looked at it. I'm like, man, if these guys are familiar with this verse, which they probably are because they're hearing the scriptures read weekly in the synagogue. Maybe they were being heretical. I'm Maybe just... they were just being heretical. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think that there's a lot of that that they do. Um. I think there's a lot of language that they take in the Old Testament that is speaking of Yahweh, and they apply it to Christ. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you I know, agree. and you do see that in certain passages, and I mean, specifically the you know the ministry of Paul. I mean, you see how he uses certain passages, but I mean, even in the Gospels. Um, but I think too, one of the main points in the Gospels is the humanity of Christ is very important. It is. You know, I think it. it we would maybe had a conversation with Mark, Matthew, and Luke. You know, obviously just, I left out John. <laughs> but I think if we would have held a conversation with those guys, they would have been, you know, aware of the fact that in, in intertestamental Judaism, there were figures that were elevated to a divine status. Mm, that's interesting. You know, like we talked about... Um, you see that in Enoch? Yeah, you can see that in Enoch because the, the even I mean even you know how Enoch, you know who's very like who's not mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. He's yeah. mentioned in Genesis and then he's not. You know somehow he got taken. You know no, that's not a rapture. <laughs> Maybe, but um, it's a rapture. It's a rapture. He got raptured. One man rapture. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you have Adam and you have Moses and you have other figures that you know take on this whole, you know divine language so it's just it's very interesting to see that divinity and inner and intertestamental judaism was being applied to you know certain jewish figures and so yeah that 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 would 
then we have to ask the question, do the Gospels do this with Jesus? Right. And, and to what extent is, is to that? To what extent? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. now we're getting so, into the humanity of Christ and also mention Christ. Did you mention the Maccabees, too? Because I think you see some of that in the Maccabees as well. Yeah. I mean, feel free to talk about it. Well, I just I remember a quote uh, talking about the heroes, you know, I think in the war. I had it out of context when I read it, but basically these these heroes, these men of God, these were these were sons of God, and and uh, and using some language that's that's similar to what we see in the Gospels, like you're saying. Yeah, and so obviously, like you know, the the Gospels, it's you know, you do you do have different people, different scholars who will say different things, and um, you know, some some scholars argue for an early Christology, others argue for a later Christology. Um, but I think the main thing is, you know, Christ, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of both. It's like, yeah, he's divine, but yet he's human. And the new Testament, you know, the, the writers are, they're handing at both ideas. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I, I don't think it's fair to just jump on one side of the fence and do like everything found in the gospels is, is this is, this is because he's God in the flesh and they're making that point. Mm. You know, I, I, like that's true, but they also we need to also take the seriousness, or we need to take seriously the humanity of Christ. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that's something that's really neglected within Christianity. Yes. Yeah. And I should say, I should, you know, I, I'm not saying all of Christianity, but just certain groups within Christianity is like, yeah, Jesus could do miracles because he was God. Mm. And well, it, that's a mistake. Yeah, and that's a mistake because it's like, well, no, we have Old Testament figures that are doing miracles as well. Does that mean they're God? Yeah. You know, so. that, that's a lack of understanding of, of the Old Testament, right? That's a lack of, of knowledge of the Old Testament, I think. Yeah. Uh, but also it's a it's a failure to recognize uh, some of the details in the gospel, I think, because I think the gospel kind of clarifies that. Maybe not Mark specifically, but I know in one of uh, Matthew, Mark or Luke, uh, Jesus, uh, I think he basically says like everything he does is, is by God's spirit. I can't remember the verse, but there's a, there's a clear indication of that. I mean, it's a spirit who comes upon him. It's a spirit who drives him to the wilderness. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think even, um, yeah, so I, I can't think of any other reference at the moment. But but the, the people also hearing, like, the Gospels read for the first time, they would have heard the spirit coming upon Jesus, and they would have recognized that from the Old Testament, right? Like, they would have recognized it probably from their experience, too. But in but uh but in the Old Testament, like spirit came upon people, you know, and they did great things, you know, um, and so it would have been a marker, like a, I don't know, if you, maybe almost like a teaser, like something great's about to happen, right? God's about to do something great with Jesus. I think that's how they would have read it if they were purely if they were coming from a purely Jewish background. The Christians who had received the Holy Spirit, I think, would have also recognized that in their experience as well. But it still would have been a similar thing of. God's about to do something great. Yeah, and so you see that right in the verses you're going to teach. Again, I just I think it's really interesting that that it's very brief and simple. And the point, as far as I can tell, seems to be actually what I what I wrote down for my notes was like like this is this is an example of how Jesus not only a king, he's like he's he's the uh, he's the king we've been waiting for because you know Adam he encountered the devil and he failed. You know, you you've got uh, um, you've got David and Saul. They they were tempted by the devil and they failed. And and here Jesus, he he is uh, driven in the wilderness and for forty days tempted by Satan. And yet the the angels are are serving him. And 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 there's and that seems to me an indication of prevailing. Because if I don't know all the other gospels and, and the details of that story, right? What that tells me is is that the angels are still with Jesus, right? Because in the Garden of Eden, God set up uh, an angel. God set up an angel in paradise to keep Adam and Eve out. God sends angels to the wilderness to serve their king. That's that's how I'm that's how I'm looking at that. So this is the victory. This is an this is like a a what do you call a foreshadowing of the victory we've been waiting for. This is the one who can withstand the devil. Which is encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. your main your main summary. What are you going to summarize? So, if you could break up what one through fifteen is all about, and maybe a few points, what would you say? 
Well, I've, I've, at the moment, I have two major points. I have, I have Jesus' royal messianic credentials, and I have the call to allegiance with Jesus, right? And that's what verse uh, 14 and 15 is. Okay, what, what do you mean by call to allegiance? Well, I think that's what he's doing here in verse 15. So he says, well, I'll just read 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this, uh, so one thing that is interesting about this, just as a Bible nerd, is gospel is like the bread of a of a of the sandwich of this passage, because it starts with the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, and the section ends with the proclamation of the gospel of God. I think that's interesting. I don't know what the significance of that is, but I thought that was interesting. But what I what's what Jesus seems to be doing here is he's saying. He's saying that the promise of God's kingdom is being fulfilled, right? Of, of God's kingdom coming on earth. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, which means it's here, right? The kingdom yeah. of God is here, right? Um, and when he says repent and believe the gospel, this is tough because this has been, I think, shrouded in sort of a, a how would you say, because of common usage, repent and believe the gospel sounds like very, Christian religious language, right? <clears throat> but this, as far as I can tell, is actually is a like a political, religious, like military call to surrender. It's like because so I'm thinking of of a uh, an episode in in Josephus where a a Roman centurion like approaches the the rebels okay. and he tells them repent and believe in me. That's true. And it's and it's like it's like in that context, he's a representative of the kingdom of Rome, and he's telling these rebels to lay down their arms, to stop fighting the king, the kingdom, and to and to I assume to trust him, right? To surrender to him. Right? Yep. And I and I can't help but see a parallel here. This is a call to surrender to the kingdom of God that has come to earth. And then, and then it's it. I think it marks the end of an introduction to the ministry of Jesus. Where at the end of this, we're kind of left like, so what is the kingdom? What does that look like? You know, because I'm I'm Joe like Potter over here hearing this, and it looks like Caesar's still king, and it looks like you know the temple's been destroyed. Maybe by the time I'm reading this, or or at least I know there's a war going on. Um, like how has the kingdom of how is the kingdom of God here? And so then it 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 kind of I think it actually stirs up those kind of questions as you go into the rest of it where you see Jesus healing people, forgiving sins, um, and uh, and kind of demonstrating what it means that the kingdom of God is here. That's true. So you would say the idea of allegiance to Jesus is what Mark's getting at. I think so. In this verse. I think that's what it's, and that's what he's doing with, um, with the, the story, with the stories and the accounts, I think, throughout uh, the book, is he's saying, this is the kind of king Jesus is, this is what his kingdom looks like when it's in operation, and this is the one who calls you to surrender and align yourself with him. Like, that seems to be the posture that Mark, that Mark is, is taking. Yeah, and I like that point though because allegiance is something that, like, if you bring like a like you know it's 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 a, it seems to be a huge theme in the New Testament. Is are you, you know, when we when you talk about faith and you talk about believing in God or believing in Christ, it's like Mark's calling for repent and believe. It's like you said, it's more has to do with allegiance as opposed to just this abstract faith, this abstract this abstract belief system that it's like oh yeah I just believe in Jesus so like everything's good. It's like, well, I think allegiance actually gets more to the point. Yeah. Like, who are you aligning yourself with? Like, yeah. and if you're aligning yourself with Jesus, like if you're aligning yourself with Jesus, then are you willing to die with him? Which is mm -hmm. allegiance to a, a person or to a system or to a way of life. Like you just quoted Josephus on, you know, um, yeah. event. it's like, yeah, I think so. I think that's true. I think it's trying to, I think. They're getting more to that. That that would probably be a better way to define faith, I think. Yeah. Are you aligning yourself with Jesus? Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, and and repent and believe the gospel. I I I always had the the assumption that believe the gospel meant the gospel that was um, that had that had been preached to me, right? Um, but at that moment, the the good news was the kingdom of God is here. That was the good news that he was preaching. And um, I think that's might be the difference between when he says. Um, so Mark says he was proclaiming the gospel of God, right? Yeah. And that's the good news that the kingdom of God is here. But in the beginning, he says um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, which is a different way of putting it. And I think I think what I think the reason for the difference is that the the gospel of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was preaching the good news of God's kingdom is here. But now we preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because the good news isn't just that the kingdom is here. It's that uh, the, the Messiah has come and he has conquered death. I think the good news has been expanded in light of, in light of the work of Jesus. Which is a good point, right? Yeah. I like that. I'm kind of taking down some notes <laughs> for myself. Yeah, man. But I've got more thinking to do, and, and I, I need to think of concise and interesting ways of, uh, of summarizing these things because, you know, I want to cover it in 25 minutes and, and have it. I want to give everyone good, like, material for discussion. So I think I might, I might just state my points without arguing the case too much, and then we can kind of have a discussion about it. Which would be good. Yeah. Yeah, I think. What else do you want to say? Um, let's see. Well, we've got a good, we've got a good 50 minutes here, so I probably do have more I, I say, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> I'd like to think more about the allegiance idea because Paul. Have you heard of a book by a guy named Matthew Bates? Mm. -mm. Okay, well, he wrote a book, and. Um, he wrote a book called, I guess I'm reading it right now. It is called, okay, let me pull it up. Did you finish reading the fundamentals of Greek? <laughs> uh huh. Did you finish reading the fundamentals of Greek? No, I'm just going through that on the side. So, um, <clears throat> this book's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Mm -hmm. it's Re Rethinking Faith Works in the Gospel of Jesus by Matthew Bates. And I mean, this book is, book. <laughs> this is one of the best books I've read in years. See, I, I don't think, I think in light of the context and the language Jesus used, it seems pretty clear that, that allegiance is, is at least, at least part of the idea of believing in and following Jesus. Um, but yeah, because what's, the language that's used is very, like, like, I mean, me and you were kind of talking about the idea of fidelity. Yeah. It's relational, but it's also um, uh, political, royal, uh, national almost. Yeah. But not national because it's not a single nation, but it's a people. So that's why it's hard to, it's hard to think of a good word for it because it's a, it's a new kind of people. It's a people of all peoples, right, that he's, that he's gathering to himself as the king. Yeah, and that's why I say I think like I I think the word allegiance and faith and works like have been construed within Christianity, you know, where like you can just kind of do your thing and there's no, you know, um, like, like I said, faith becomes this abstract thing, like so and Kierkegaard talked about, right? Like a, like a leap in the dark, but I don't think that's the way the New Testament writers depict the word faith when they're talking about pistis. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think they're they're like, oh yeah, we're just sleeping in the dark. Like we hope we're right. Yeah, what I really need to think about though is is the connection between the kind of language I see like here in Mark, for example, and the the faith alone, grace alone language of Paul, right? Because it's interesting how he really um, emphasizes, and he was really rocked, I think, by the uh, the freeness of God's forgiveness and grace. Because he, he makes it sound a little different when he says things like, he who believes but does not work, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
right? So his allegiance is counted as righteousness. But if he's does not work, like let's say it's a it's a someone who believes after they become a quadriplegic, for example, it's like it's kind of hard to see that that allegiance, or or you see that on the the thief on the cross, right? It's like well, he seemed to align with Jesus, but we only have a few seconds of yeah of I that. So so it's just interesting the comp to to try to think about Paul's teaching on the gift like you've talked about right the gift of grace through faith and the and what and what we normally think of as allegiance so I sh I'd like to check out that book yeah it's a good it's a really good book I, I definitely recommend everyone to pick it up if you're like into theology and you're a nerd like us I, I would definitely recommend it I mean I feel like it's a book that people should <clears throat> I mean all Christians should read that's how good I think the book is um, how long is the book it's it's only it's only a couple hundred pages and That's it's really, nice. Yeah, it's really nice, and he even he even has questions at the end of each chapter. We could do a Bible study with that. Oh, I love this book. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been between him and John Barclay lately. I've been just loving both of their work. So, what have you finished Barclay's book? I'm almost done with it. <clears throat> What's this other guy's name? I want to type it. Uh, it's Matthew Bates. Matthew W. Bates. That's so funny. That's the name of a friend of mine in high school. <laughs> Oh, there you go. So I don't think so. He wasn't really a Bible scholar. What's the name of the book? It is called um, Allegiance. Allegiance, or no, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Rethinking Faith, Works, and the Gospel of Jesus the King. All right. Looks like it's not an audio book, so it might be a while before I get around to that one. But um, He's got a new one coming out, too, called Gospel Allegiance, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ. Interesting. So, hey, so based on what you have read, though, of that book, how do you think, how do you think the idea of free grace works with this idea of allegiance? Well, I would say that, um, I mean, it's... It, it, I would say that if you align yourself with Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we talk about having faith in Christ, and we just talked about like a few minutes ago of having allegiance to Christ, which is a better way to say it, is like this idea of free grace. Well, I think that like kind of like as John Barclay is pointing out that that grace, like God gives you a status, which is in Christ. Yeah. So he places you in that status right it's like your status changes yeah and that ha obviously has you know political and socio um cultural cultural you know references in the ancient world that and it has implications yeah it? And it has implications yeah there's some ramifications for it right yeah so, you know it's interesting people get really hung up on like talking about the gospel as affecting social change but what it's doing is it's creating a society like the church is a like society, a subculture, right? So it's like, it's not, yeah, you, you don't have, you can't have one or the other, right? Because if it changes culture, it's because it's transformative and powerful, right? Because of the work on, in the individual. And that's it. Like, I, I think it's just, so if, if it's true that God puts us in a new status, which is union and participation in Christ, right? We're, we're unified in Christ. We're united with Christ in his baptism and his death, right? Um, then our status changes, but then because we're given a new status, in return he gives us his spirit, and then in turn that causes us to have an allegiance to Jesus. Yep. So to answer your question is I don't really think it takes anything from free grace. Right. Because grace Because of the new birth. Because of the new birth, yeah. Because so it is a work of grace. This stuff I'm working through and thinking yeah. it's a it's a different way to look at it, but no, I I kind of had that. See, I, I I wouldn't have said it as strongly as that title. It's a pretty strong, strongly worded title of that book, right? Salvation by Allegiance Alone. But I I have started as I'm reading the Bible in Greek and thinking about like the teachings of the the Bible as I'm reading through it, or I don't know how many times I've read through it, but um, reading through it in Greek for the first time <clears throat> and reading it slowly, I definitely have seen there's something like allegiance in the idea communicated by faith, the Greek word pistis. It's definitely there. So this guy, uh, Matthew Bates, seems to 
believe that that's the thing. That's what faith is. It sounds like um, I hadn't I hadn't really gotten to that point, but it's definitely part of faith. I think I can say that for sure. But I still tend to think of pistis faith as like it's also like a confidence, right? Because you're trusting you're trusting yourself to this king, right? But that's kind of part of allegiance too. So it, it's like allegiance is 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 wrapped up in there. Yeah, and that's I think though that's it. Like he he even you know in his book he translates on you know um, he reads he said consider the following passages passages in which I have substituted allegiance in place of the more traditional faith in all the places in which the pistis or family appears. The first is from Romans three twenty one and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the allegiance of Jesus the Christ for all who give allegiance. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in that of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood through his allegiance. Therefore, since we have been justified by allegiance, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus the Christ. So he translated Romans 3, 21 through 25, rather than having faith, he put allegiance there. And then in Romans 5, 1, he does the same thing with, you know, justified by allegiance. Right. So part of the reason it works is that the kingdom of God is subverting the earthly kingdoms, but not through military conquest, through peace and grace and love. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's, like I said, the word allegiance, I think it kind of does serve a, a little better because there's a military element in yeah and it's like who's like i said like faith like well that that, that word faith is has taken on so many connotations over the years where it's like oh yeah it's like yeah i just have faith in god but right. it, it's like what does that sound really challenging yeah whereas i think with allegiance it gets to more loyalty yeah like are you actually being loyal to you know this gospel proclamation which the gospel is about jesus as the king yep you know, it's it's the, it's not just the death and resurrection. It's about there's a kingly element to it that obviously a lot of a lot of times is missing in the proclamation of the gospel. It's about Jesus as king. Yep. Therefore, which is why Paul can say every knee is going to bow in heaven and, un, un, you know, under the earth or, you know, I mean, all yep. people essentially are going to give respect to this king. So I yep. think when Paul and them were going around proclaiming the gospel about King Jesus, it would make more sense for them to be are you being are you having allegiance to jesus well not only that but, yeah but will you change allegiance from caesar to jesus yeah absolutely. If jesus is the son of god caesar is not <laughs> that's what's so radical about it yeah and i mean that's not to say that you know you don't submit to the empires that, that you know around you yeah and they but, talk right yeah i mean paul mentions that in romans 13 but i think yeah. at the end of the day you can see that we're still living in a day and age where people have taken allegiance to Jesus more seriously in countries in which they're being persecuted for believing in King Jesus. And, you know, those people who are dying as martyrs, clearly it's because they're, they're in line with Jesus. And that's going to happen when you're, you know, um, it can happen when, you know, you have made an allegiance to this king yeah. because his kingdom's in conflict with the kingdoms of this age, the way the kingdoms operate. Yep. So, it operates on the principle of faith, hope, and love. Yeah, and I mean, I, I could see some people having problems with it, but at the end of the day, even the people who would be like, no, like we should just keep it like faith or have their words stay the same or whatever, you know. Um, I would ask them, what does faith mean then? <laughs> that would be the thing. It's like, well, what's it really mean to have faith? And, and if they're most of the time, 90% of people will say it's, do 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 do. They'll give a list, and it's like, oh yeah, well that's that's allegiance. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so what you're saying is it's allegiance. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. That's funny. Well, so I wanted to say one thing, just because you faith is is a is a term used outside of uh, outside of the church, right? And what it means is a what it means to people outside of the church is a a stupid anti-intellectual assumption based on wishful thinking, and that is not what the Bible is talking about. And so it's a good time to change the word we use because the word no longer means anything resembling what it means in the Bible when we translate no. it. And I think people have good intentions and motivations like all of us, like myself, when we use the word um, faith. But like you said, when people 
thing I agree, of yeah. faith. And he does that in his and Matthew Bates is doing this in chapter one, where he's basically disarming all these theories and all these, you know, uses of the word faith and how they've basically um, construed the biblical idea of faith, pistis, and yeah. he is gonna get, you know, his audience to think about, okay, well this is actually what it means and how it's used in the New Testament as opposed to you know, so in Kierkegaard's definition and, yeah. you know, the, the, the people, um, you know, using it today. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's like faith. People typically think, oh, yeah, I just kind of these are just a bunch of dummies running around who, yeah, they just believe in anything. It's like, right. well, no, I mean, that's not well, how Paul and them are using it. It's about yeah. there's a political context to the New Testament. Yeah. Jesus is king. Therefore. When you are placed in his king, is his, you know, um, kingdom. kingdom are united with Christ. Now your response is allegiance, right. which is, you know, taking. Okay, right. Yeah. So there's that, actually, that's, the, that's, that's challenging. Yeah. Which is what faith meant historically. It's yeah. just that I think partially with modernism and the new atheist movement has had a hand in this too. Faith has come to mean just a. A assumption based on wishful thinking. Yeah, it's because of the Enlightenment period. You have people taking the word faith and kind of backing away yeah. and being like, okay, well, yeah, like we, it doesn't really make sense. This whole Christian ideology, all this stuff doesn't really make sense in light of science. But it's like, well, the, the Bible is really not a science book, first and foremost. It's it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. It's a it's a narrative. It's a story. Um, you yeah. know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there. It's not just, well, we need to defend ourselves and have faith. Yeah. Um, sorry, cut out. We, and having faith in God, like because our faith, because things don't make sense. It's like, no, let's let's get back to the roots. And so I think Matthew Bates is doing this in this book where it's getting back to, and you see this a lot. Like another guy um, that I really like is a guy named, um, I'll look up his book right now so that, I can reference it to people. Um, his name is Joshua Dip, and he wrote a book called Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology. And Joshua, that's a what? really good book. That's a really good book. What's his last name? His name is Jip, uh, J-I-P-P. J-I-P-P. And then he also wrote another book that I really liked called Saved by, Ho by Faith and Hospitality. Hmm. And I, that's the thing. I, I really think the New Testament, if we pay attention, these things are, this is what the New Testament's really about. Yeah. You know, the royal ideology that uh, Joshua talks about in his book. It's, you know, with again, it goes back to understanding that the gospel is really about Jesus as being a king. Right. And, and I love that these, these, these you know, um, the new, I guess uh, the books that have been coming out, the scholarly books, that they're having this, they're centering around this, you know, this way of thinking. I've just found it like, oh man, this is awesome. Yeah. You know, because I feel like it's, you know, a lot of it has stemmed from guys like Scott McKnight, who has amazing, you know, books and, um, you know, N.T. Wright and this whole idea of the kingdom and the king. Yeah. And, you know, it's been awesome. So it's cool to see like younger scholars coming out with these books you know so <clears throat> oh yeah that is cool um the problem is they don't put them on audible like it's so easy to put your book on audible now they, they need to do it maybe you could tell them right now hey put your book on audible yeah jip and what was that other guy's name matthew bates put your book on audible like it's free they'll just take a commission but get it done more people will listen yeah i mean i would hope so because like i said joshua and matthew they, they i love what they've done with um you know, with shaping the, they're, they're, they're shaping, uh, you know, uh, the Bible or shaping theology in light of all this stuff. So, yeah, man. Um, Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology. There it is. Yep. Very cool. I'm going to check. Book. <clears throat> so, uh, we need more audiobooks. So, I'm so glad N.T. Wright puts his books on Audible. <laughs> yeah, have... he, he's, it's probably because he's got the, you know, Harper. Mm, yeah, they know what's up. Yeah, they got those publishers, whereas with, like, Joshua Kipp and Matthew Bates, they're using, like, Erdman's and, yeah, you know. Um, but they can do it. They can just submit it to Audible. They, they convert it for you. You don't even have to pay. They'll just take a percentage. Yeah, so if you guys are listening, this is us <laughs> calling you out. 
<laughs> more like more like asking nicely. Yeah. I'm just asking nicely. <laughs> so uh, okay, so that's interesting. You you mentioned the his book uh, Saved by Faith and Hospitality. That's really interesting because there is a household element to it, right? We're being welcomed into God's household, right? We're adopted. Yeah, yeah and that's why I, I really think like the, the the paradigm within Christianity needs to shift, and it is shifting, and we're seeing that shift where, you know, like I said, guys like Scott McKnight addressing the topic that the gospel is about Jesus as king. Um, you know, you ha and then you have these younger scholars as well addressing the, 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 the issues associated with what did it mean for Jesus to be king? Mm -hmm. and, and again, it comes back down to allegiance. Like it's not just an abstract thing where, oh yeah, Jesus is cool. Like I believe in his death and resurrection, but then there's no mission in the sense that, and I, I'm not saying being a missionary, I'm saying there's no, like, um, what is it? It's well, there's, there's no orientation. Accountability. Mm, yeah. Well, that's what the church is for, right? Yeah. But, but even within... Like if the church doesn't have a sense of direction and mission, then you, they're not going to hold you accountable to it, right? But I thought we did a we did a a study. The guys at Covenant Grace uh, Menifee, we did a study through Tim Keller's book called I can't even remember what it's called. But it was about vocation. It was about looking at work. It's called Every Good Endeavor. That's the name of the book. And it's about looking at your work as a vocation, right? A vocation for the glory of Jesus. And that really, that really helped me understand and think through how my, how my vocation and my uh, work skills, I guess you could call it, it, how they fit into God's kingdom. And I've started really thinking in terms of, okay, how can I use these skills for the advancement of the good news of Jesus and for the building up the body of Christ? And, and it's not just that, like when you do good work, you're, you're, contributing to a society that's that's prosperous and at peace where the gospel can thrive right with fewer barriers but if you can go over and above and above that with your vocational skills or, or whatever position you have um even better you know and so that's how i've been thinking about it and it's very kind of freeing and it's because i don't have time necessarily to uh um like meet a lot of uh non-christians to share the good news with them um or uh or to do missionary work uh you know that doesn't seem to be my calling but as a software engineer i can still serve the kingdom and and that's really awesome totally and you too as a welder <laughs> yeah no and then and that's it i mean it's vocationally too i mean paul worked with his hands you know what i mean yep i mean he was a guy that literally that's what he did yeah he made tents he made tents so funny how that's become like a, a figure speech, <laughs> tent making. <laughs> Which is awesome. Yeah. So, but, I mean, like I said, I, I would love to, which I think I'm going to go back to, I'm going to, I'm going to actually enroll in Fuller. And, you know, um, that's what I'm thinking late. I mean, we could just keep this off air. Yeah, I think that was good. Thanks, bro. Yeah. But I think I'm